So I'm very excited today, and the reason is that I'm here actually with Scott Wentrip, who is a dear colleague, friend, actually even clients of mine. <laughs> Scott is the founder of Wentrip Consulting Group, which is actually a global consulting company in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. His mission is to eliminate hiring delays, which so companies always have the talent they need instead of empty seats. And I'm also very excited on behalf of Scott to share with you that he is about to release his brand new book, uh, which is published by McGraw-Hill, which is called High Velocity Hiring, How to Hire Top Talent in an Instant. So welcome, Scott. Chad, thank you. Very glad to be with you today. We always have very good conversations, is my experience. Absolutely. So the first question with this new book that's coming out April 2017, depending when you're listening to this podcast, I'm very excited. I've seen the manuscript and it's absolutely fabulous. The first question to you, what's the essence of the book? How would you describe what's the message in the book and how does that going to help executives and entrepreneurs in helping their hiring? So the book helps organizations get out of the old and into the new. We're recording this during the holiday season, so that feels right. You know, you get rid of old stuff and replace it with new stuff. And there's a new way of hiring that organizations can install. So uh, I like to think of an empty seat like an open wound. It is a painful distraction. It is the number one threat to organizational goals. You can't reach your goals if you don't have the people to help you reach them. The old way of hiring actually perpetuates open seats. The old way is where you keep a job open until the right person shows up. The new way of hiring, which is what the book is about, is very different. You eliminate empty seats. The new way of hiring is where you cultivate top talent, and then you wait for the right job to show up. I've been sharing this uh, over the decades, and um, it's stunning to look at the difference in the organizations. The organizations who engage in the new way of hiring are always leaps and bounds above everybody else because they have the manpower and woman power to reach their goals. So I share the secrets. These have been best kept secrets only shared with my clients around the world. And I realized it was time to share this with a broader audience. And a book is an absolute wonderful way to do that because I can't be everywhere. So this book will be everywhere instead. This is fabulous. So you must have sat there one day, you know, collecting all your knowledge, wisdom, experiences and said to yourself, it's time for me to write a book. So I'm just curious, what was the trigger? What was the kind of moment that you said to yourself, I'm going to write a brand new book? This was very simple for me. It's a great question. It was the summer of 2015. Now, up to that point, this is a book I've always wanted to write. I've always believed in high-velocity hiring. I practiced it for a long time. I've always believed you can line up talent. I did that as a recruiter. I did that as an executive. I was shocked to find out how many organizations don't do this. I had hoped this would get better on its own. You would think that technology would have cut down how long it takes to hire. You would have thought that the use of talent scouts or recruiters, their same thing would have helped, and it has to some degree. But in the summer of 2015, I realized it was the right time because a measurement struck me in the head, not literally, but figuratively. There's a measurement called time to fill. And that's exactly what it is. It's the time it takes to fill a job. There's a website, dhihiringindicators.com. It's uh, the Dice organization, Dice Holding Companies. And they have a wonderful site that's been tracking this. They are showing where this number has been over the past 15 years. And as well, actually now 16 years. 
the summer of 2015, it hit its all-time high of the past 15 years. Now, that stunned me, Chad, because I thought when I looked at that number, that should be going down, not up. We have more automation, more technology. I mean, just look at LinkedIn, for example. We're all linked in with each other now. We have all this connectivity, yet time to fill has reached its all-time high. The skill shortage has played a role in that, but there's a bigger problem. There's a process shortage. People don't have the right process to let them hire quickly. And I realized it was time. I keep hearing this mantra among leaders that's being perpetuated, and it's be slow to hire and quick to fire. Well, I don't know anybody that slow to hire is working real well for because they don't have the people to reach their goals. So I realized it was time. And so, of course, you know, went through the process of the book proposal and my agent shopped it around and we got a couple offers and I picked McGraw-Hill because they got it. My editor in particular, Danya Dickerson, is a hiring manager. And when I described this book for her, when I described the new way of hiring versus the old, she just said, oh, yeah, the world needs that. As far as I've been able to find, there's never been a book written on faster hiring. It's always been about accuracy. It's always about hiring top talent. It's always about being rigorous, but not about speed. Speed and accuracy have been treated as though they're mutually exclusive. So that's what inspired me. Uh, interesting note. So that was in 2015. The average time to fill was 27.2 working days. Guess what? 2016, it's gone up again to 28. So I think my timing was right on this one. That's great. I know from being with and working together with you for many years, you're an absolute expert when it comes to hiring and now hiring fast, attracting the best. My next question is around how do you attract the best of the best? What are some of the techniques to do so? And then the whole essence you're talking about doing so quickly. So not only bringing the best of the best to attract them, but how do you do so quickly? So the answer to both questions is you have to front load the process. Go back to what I said before, where the new way of hiring is you cultivate top talent and then you wait for the right job to show up. The way you do that and you do it accurately and you do it quickly is you improve what I call your candidate gravity. And it's a term I came up with some years ago. I wanted to figure out why are some organizations able to hire more quickly than others. And there's a number of reasons behind that. But one of them is about the flow of talent. What I found in working with different organizations is they either had a very weak flow, an inconsistent flow, or a robust flow. And that percentage, the organizations with a robust flow, varies from year to year. But it's always less than 10% of the organizations I come across, and I've worked with thousands. And so I was sitting in one of these organizations one day, and as we were talking, it just dawned on me that, you know, this is kind of like gravity, that, you know, if an organization has a strong pool, just like the earth has a strong pool, the earth keeps things rooted. Things are pulled back to the ground if you drop them in the air. But I realized in thinking about it that way, and part of what triggered this, I was looking at an apple on a table, and I'm thinking Sir Isaac Newton. I was being really, really nerdy in this moment. <laughs> and I just realized what's lacking in these organizations is what's lacking in space. You know, candidates are kind of floating off to other companies, kind of the competition when organizations have weak candidate gravity. But if they have strong candidate gravity, they're pulling all that talent towards them. So that's why I gave it this name. And I had already figured out before giving it this name that there are eight streams of talent, eight ways to access different pools of people. And some of these pools you know, do overlap, but if you don't tap into all eight, you're not tapping into all the talent. 
most organizations are only tapping into two or three streams effectively, which is why they have weak or inconsistent candidate gravity. So to go back to your original question, the way that you hire more quickly, the way that you attract people is you have to use all eight of those streams. You have to use all eight of them correctly. And in the book, I go into great detail. As you might understand, there's only so much we can go to answer in two or three minutes. And yes, I'm pointing people to the book, but I will say this, if people want to get started on candidate gravity, is just look at your referral generation, for example. That's kind of the gold standard of talent streams. And just look in your organization and ask yourself and ask others, are we asking everybody for help with referrals? And if the answer is no, you're missing something there. That's just the start. You know, too many organizations are relying on job boards, and that's their only way of recruiting. That just happens to be one aspect of the automation talent stream. So if you just start to look at those two things right there, you can see just how much you're missing. There are ways to mine candidates from your existing database. There are networking opportunities that are not being tapped into. And there are initiatives like using talent scouts and even talent manufacturing. You can engage in creating talent from scratch. And that's why when you use all of them put together, you can attract the very best talent and do it very quickly and very accurately. This is great. I especially love the analogy you use of candidate floating in space. And your goal is to attract them to you. Uh, So uh, this is a great analogy. So now that we brought those amazing candidates into our organizations, we attracted them, we hired them. Just for a brief moment here, can you reflect on how do we nurture and grow great teams? So this slow to hire, quick to fire mindset that's been pervasive, you know, what you're talking about is the second part of that. If you're quick to fire, that's a heavy handed leadership methodology is based on fear, it's based on threats, and that never works in an organization. Believe me, I've worked in one, one of my early recruiting jobs. It was an environment with with cameras, and I mean, this is not a big company. It was just, you know, a fear-based, very heavy-handed environment. I've come up with an alternative to slow to hire, quick to fire. It is fast to hire, quick to inspire. And that's how you take care of this talent, is we have to inspire the best out of people. Now, there's a lot of ways to go about that. I want to talk about the one I'm the biggest fan of. It's not a new idea. It just happens to be underutilized. And that is the use of one-on-ones, one-on-one meetings led by the manager every single week. This is a 30-minute investment of time. And the organizations who weren't doing this and then start doing it, it is, is transformational what it's doing. First off, this becomes sacred time for the employee. Just 30 minutes, with all the rush rush that we have in our world today, just 30 minutes of investment makes that person feel prized and important. In that 30 minutes, then, the leader can address that person's specific needs. Everybody needs to be nurtured differently. Every employee comes to the table with different skill sets, behaviors, traits, things that they need to work on. This becomes almost like a personal training session. Like I know that you and I both work out, Chad. You know, that personal trainer that taught me how to work out a long time ago and the one I see from time to time makes all the difference, inspires me to stretch and grow and do things differently, points out things that I can't see. And then there's another thing that can happen on these one-on-ones, and that is practice. It's said that practice makes perfect. I've never seen perfection sustained in the workplace, but I have seen practice increase profitability. 
I've seen it increase performance. So practice improves performance. So you can practice conversations. You can uh, go through a case study. You can practice a, a difficult interaction you're going to have with a customer. If managers just invest this time every single week, what they will find, because it's always been the case for people who've done it, is that it's the most important thing that they do. In fact, it becomes the cherished thing. You know, the reports and all those other things that we get mired in in the workplace, those aren't as much fun as taking care of our people, the essence of the organization. So that's my advice to people out there is if you're not doing one-on-ones, make them a consistent practice. And if you are, look at all those different elements I just talked about and incorporate the ones you're missing. And in particular, it's probably going to be the practice component because most people are talking about doing work versus practicing doing work. And that just makes a huge difference. It's a safe place where the employee can try on new techniques, new behavior, new ways of doing things versus having to risk doing that live and on the job. So you just said uh, slow to hire, quick to fire. So let's just touch on that for one brief moment. There comes a time that we have to say goodbye to an employee, to a team member. From your perspective, what determines making that decision and how do we best execute it? I'm glad you brought up slow to hire, quick to fire, all these rhymes here. Again, you know, remembering that the alternative is fast to hire, quicker to inspire. If you're doing that, if you're being that leader that spots the right talent, puts them into the job, nurtures that talent through inspiring the best out of people, in particular through your one-on-ones. As part of that, you've probably and should have set expectations, what I call clear and reasonable expectations. These are the outcomes and the results and showing people how to achieve those outcomes and results. There comes a time where if people aren't performing, you have to put them on a performance improvement plan and you give them a couple chances. But if they don't improve, It is truly, in my opinion, an act of compassion to let people move on with their lives. I've watched organizations, Chad, where the leader said, you know, we should really fire that person. And it's a year later. And a year later, they're saying, you know, we really should have fired that person a year ago. Well, that happens because of something I call NPS, nice person syndrome. You know, to get along in business, you typically have to be nice. And most people aren't faking it. When you become a leader, that niceness can work against you. It keeps you from doing the things you need to do. If people realize they've done all that they can do, they've set clear and reasonable expectations, they've held people to them, they've put them on performance improvement plans if they're not meeting expectations, if they've mentored them and they've done all that they can and the person's not improving, then it's time for that act of compassion. We have to set our nice person syndrome aside and do the nicer thing, which is actually to let somebody go. And, And the last piece, the thing you said is how do you do that? I really believe when it's time to let somebody go, there's two things we can do. And one of them is going to surprise you. So I'll start with the one that may not be a surprise. So the first one is to kiss the person goodbye. I don't mean that literally. Kiss stands for keep it short and simple. I like that version better than the keep it simple, stupid version. When you're firing somebody, there's really not a lot that has to be said. People overexplain themselves all too often and they do it because they feel bad. Remembering that this is an act of compassion, instead, keep it short and simple. Just say, hey, Chad, you know that we've been on this performance improvement plan. Things haven't gotten better. So today's probably not going to be a surprise to you. I'm going to have to let you move on. Done. End of sentence. I'm now done. So that's the first thing. Keep it short and simple. By the way, you can do that. There's another little mantra I heard. Say what you mean. 
just don't say it mean. I can say those words very nicely and more often than not because I've invested time in helping people or trying to help them, they'll thank me even though I'm firing them. So that's the first thing. Keep it short and simple while saying what you mean without saying it mean. The second thing is have a little celebration before they go. Take them to lunch and their colleagues to lunch and let everybody say goodbye. You know, all too often, organizations rush people out the door. This is especially true in sales. They're so afraid somebody's going to steal the database or download this or take that. Heck, you know, you've all invested time in one another. Have a nice goodbye. You know, if you've done this path I've talked about, you've both put your best foot forward. Now, they may not take you up on it. They may want to go ahead and leave. But bring in donuts, bring in bagels, take them to lunch, celebrate the contribution that person made to the organization while they were there, even if it's a short period of time. Now, what's the payoff in doing that? Well, that person is probably going to talk a little bit differently about your organization if you fire them that way than if you just show them the door like a lot of organizations do. And that's the way I would do it. If I'm a leader, Chad, and I do those things, I can hold my head high because I know I did my part, but I also did this compassionately and ended it compassionately as well. Fabulous advice. I really like that. You know, in the book, you outlined six key steps. Going through them quickly here, create higher right profiles, improve candidates' gravity, maximize hiring styles, conduct experiential interviews, maintain a talent inventory, keep the tap flowing. What I would like to ask you is just to give a little bit of a, kind of a quick overview. What are those steps? And obviously, I would encourage everyone to get the book and get into the detail of what those steps mean. But can you just whet our appetite? What do those mean? And how do we leverage them in our business? So the first step of hiring better is you better have a blueprint. And that blueprint is pointing you towards who to hire. That's a higher right profile, just what it says. What's nice about a higher right profile is it actually takes the emotional element out of hiring. Now, most of you can probably relate to this in dating. Dating is this mishmash of practicality with emotionality and a whole bunch of chemistry thrown in as well. And it skews decision making. Before I met my wife, Holly, I had dated a couple people, and I even took my higher right profile and turned it into a dating right profile. And, you know, there are some things that are supposed to be non-negotiable, what I call deal breakers. Well, I dated a couple people, and one was really pretty, one was really smart. Okay, they were both really pretty and both smart, let's be honest. And I ignored that both of them had a deal breaker for a little while because, gosh, they're so pretty, they're so smart. Well, how'd that work out for me? I didn't marry them. I ended up marrying Holly. I let the emotions run the show for a while. So dating and interviewing are a lot alike. And there's a lot of emotion that goes into this. Uh, in the research I've done along the way and for the book, one of the things that managers have told me time and time again is that becoming comfortable with a candidate in an interview was actually a bad thing. Because what they realized was, they stopped being as rigorous when they got comfortable with somebody. They stopped asking some of the tough questions because they liked the person. They were comfortable with them. They can see themselves working with them every single day. Higher right profiles take that emotionality out. It makes it very black and white who you should hire and who you should not. Now, candidate gravity I talked about. Once we have those higher right profiles, we know who to look for. We can go maximize each of those eight talent streams. But there's something we have to do here. We have to make sure 
that our hiring blindness doesn't get in the way. Hiring blindness is a form of perceptual blindness. There's limits to our human perception. It's, for example, why people who are driving down the road, they don't see bicyclists or motorcyclists. We're not good at seeing the unexpected. And if you don't ride a bicycle and if you don't uh, ride motorcycles, you're actually more likely to hit somebody on a bicycle or a motorcycle because of the limits of human perception. Well, we take those limits of human perception into interviews. And this is why good interviews become bad hires. The person you thought you were interviewing and hiring ends up not being the one that you end up bringing on board. You can maximize your hiring style. That's step three. And in the book, I give tips on how to do that. In fact, if you go to my website, you can download something right now. It's called Making Better Hires. It will introduce you to the four hiring styles, help you figure out which one applies to you. And this will have you on your way to countering your hiring blindness. Now, if we've done all that, we have the hire rate profiles, we have the blueprint, we've improved the flow of talent, we're ready to interview because we've countered hiring blindness, now we can conduct a better interview. Well, what is a better interview? It's one that's real, not conceptual. Conceptual interviews are what we typically do. Interviews are typically where people come together and talk about doing work. If you think about just that chat, that's a little insane. We're going to talk about doing work versus doing work. And we're going to rely on that person to tell us how they work and then hope that that works out. It's not that all candidates are being deceptive. It's just normal that people put their best selves forward. An experiential interview is different in a couple ways. One is it allows you to see the person doing sample work. And in the book, I go into great detail how to set this up. But right now, you could even think about what are some sample things I could have somebody do that would demonstrate to me that they're capable of doing this job. That allows you to experience the candidate, but also allow the candidate to experience you and the job and the kind of work they'd be doing. The beauty of the experiential interview is it's one of the things that speeds up the process. Instead of two or three or four separate or even five, I've heard five and six separate in-person interviews, crazy. It takes one in-person interview in this system to experience the person doing work, which is speeding up the process. So now that we've done that, if we just start cultivating people before we need them, now we're not going to put them on a shelf somewhere. That's an illegal thing here in the States called kidnapping. We don't do that. We don't have a cryo freeze to put people on ice. But what we can do is we can line up a couple of people for each of our core jobs that could become open. And, you know, if we have a couple of them lined up, a couple possibilities, chances are one of them is going to be available when a job opens. And that's how we can achieve a zero time to fill. Uh, we can offer them the job that day and the job is filled. And then the last step of the process is, you know, we can keep the tap flowing by realizing we can't change this overnight. There are accountabilities and systems we're going to need to change. So the final step of this process, step six, keeping the tap flowing, really counters some of the mistakes that organizations make when they implement new strategies. So for example, one of them is they try to change too much at once. We're terrible at that as human beings. Uh, what I show people how to do in the book, and this applies to other strategies as well, but I talk about it in this context, is you just you know build talent inventories for one role at a time. You, you implement this in a very measured way. So that's the system. Those higher rate profiles, those point you to the candidates where you're going to increase candidate gravity. You make sure your hiring style is being maximized to counter that hiring blindness. 
if you then go conduct those experiential interviews, that helps you build that talent inventory. And then all you got to do, Chad, is just keep that tap flowing. It's truly that simple. And the reason I break it down into six steps is, you know, it's really as simple when you break it down that way. I, I show people in the book also how to implement these things one at a time. Uh, in the back of each chapter, I have very specific instructions of how to implement this organization wide. This is fabulous. It's really step-by-step blueprint to how to do so. And uh, you just outlined this so eloquently. So thank you for that. Thank you. You know, your next chapter in the books talk about lean recruiting. So say a couple of words, uh, Omar, about what does that mean? How do we recruit in a lean kind of way? So the, the entire chapter on lean recruiting is about the appropriate use of technology. Technology is a huge part of high-velocity hiring. It's a huge part of hiring whether you're somebody who gauges in this system of hiring or not. The problem is technology doesn't solve all the problems by itself. And some organizations are picking the wrong technology or they're using technology incorrectly. This chapter deals with all of that. Lean recruiting is really, it was inspired by the whole lean manufacturing movement that came out of Japan. It's all about eliminating waste, eliminating wasted time, eliminating wasted effort. And that's what we want to do here. You know, hiring for leaders, it's not their full-time job. And even if HR is involved in the process, it's not, it's not their full-time job either. The, the only department where it's the full-time job typically is the talent acquisition team. And they have many positions to fill. So there's no room for waste of any kind. So lean recruiting makes sure that, that technology is being chosen correctly and then used in the right ways. And there are three standards that I talk about in this chapter. For technology and the use of it to be considered lean, it has to meet three criteria. It must reduce effort, because that's technology's number one job. It must be easy to use, and therein lies a problem. You know, some technology actually is easy to use, but not for the organization who's using it. It's, It's a mismatch. So you have to look at that one. And then the third thing, you know, technology is expensive, so it also has to produce substantially better results. And so in the chapter, I help people ask hard questions before they invest tens of thousands of dollars, because that's what most technology is going to cost these days when you pick it for for hiring. I help them ask these hard questions of themselves, but also their vendors, because sometimes the technology is not the problem. Sometimes it's a great technology. It's just not right for that organization. And used correctly, you only need a handful of technologies. Could be something as simple as one job board and one applicant tracking system or talent management system. And that combined with the talent accelerator process, that six-step process I gave you, can allow any organization to hire in an instant. That's great. That's great. So you then talk about to engage talent scouts. So I understand the concept of a scouts, but how do we leverage our own talent scouts out there? Well, so I got a little creative with this is, you know, for me, talent scouts are those third party recruiters, staffing agencies, uh, services that provide all kinds of different means for filling jobs like vendor management solutions, managed service providers. There's a number of different ways that the staffing and recruitment industry and vendors can play a role and they should. Those are the talent scouts. And what inspired me to call this chapter talent scouts is I was watching baseball one day and something dawned on me, you know, in Major League Baseball, there's never an empty position. They have 
anywhere from 150 to 200 players they can call on at any given time. Now, they're not all there with them. They have their standard roster, an expanded roster, and a farm system. And you add up all those people, that's 150 to 200 available people that they can call up or send down at any point in time. It's the ultimate talent inventory. Now, of course, these baseball organizations, we're talking a billion-dollar industry, Major League Baseball, and they have their own internal scouting arms, just like organizations have their own internal scouting. But here's what's interesting about baseball. They still rely on external scouts because this recruitment takes place all over the world and they can't be everywhere. So these external scouts are funneling talent towards these organizations so they can always fill a role in an instant. And that's what inspired this. All organizations could have their own external talent scout or two or three. And in this chapter, I talk about how to use them heroically. Right now, only about a third of organizations use staffing and recruiting related services each year. And what's kind of odd about that is these services actually guarantee their talent. If an organization hires on their own, there's no guarantees. It's do-it-yourself staffing. If it doesn't work out, you've got to start over. But these staffing and recruitment vendors and the services they provide, they will guarantee that people will work out. And if not, they'll replace those individuals. So it's not that you want to use them exclusively. Most organizations do not, but they need to be a part of this. In fact, that's one of the reasons they're one of the spokes of candidate gravity. Organizations that use all eight, as I said before, including these talent agents, can fill their jobs in an instance. So that's why this chapter is dedicated to that, is it helps organizations pick the right ones and staffing firms and recruitment firms pick the right clients as well. Great insights. So your final chapter is all about durable diversity. So where did that term come from mm. and, and where, where is it going? Well, I won't give away the whole story, but I, I tell a story early in the book about an experience I had. And it was part of a search committee for a university. And I agreed to join this. It was very early in my career. I agreed to join the search for a director for a department because the university talked about how committed they were to diversity. And that was important to me. I, I had seen the effects of prejudicial hiring. And they're not good. So I agreed to be a part of this. And then the, the committee was pulled together. And here were our instructions. Uh, I'll never forget this, Chad. The VP or provost or whatever his title was, I don't remember, it was a long time ago, but I remember this man, I remember his face, I remember his words. He said, look, there are four candidates for this job. One of them, and he mentioned the ethnicity, if that person is qualified, he gets the job. I was stunned. I raised my hand, of course, you know, I tend to speak my mind. And I said, what if the other candidates are more qualified? He looked at me with an evil glare and repeated himself one more time. He said, look, there are four candidates. One of them is, he mentioned the ethnicity, he said, if that person's qualified, he'll get the job. So I, I finished the meeting, I debated about quitting, and then I said, no, I mean, it was more my gut than anything else. So fortunately, that gentleman was the most qualified. And then he found out that this happened. He found out about these directives and he was very upset. And he called all of us together from the search committee because he wanted to find out who told us this. And it was really an awkward situation. But he knew the, the career path I had chosen in hiring. And he said to me the following. He said, you know, Scott, I know you're committed to hiring. I know that's your profession. He said, 
Diversity is important, and, and I hope you know, you'll know you make it your commitment to do something that's a little more durable than what was done here. It was such an interesting choice of words. He used the word durable, and that word stuck with me. I didn't couple it with diversity at the time, but one day I was thinking about him. I was thinking about my process and how it improves diversity, and I went, oh, this is durable diversity. The talent accelerator process naturally and organically by its nature creates a stronger, more sustainable form of diversity, durable diversity. So I didn't set out to be a guy who had a practice that addresses diversity as well, but I did. And I think that inspired it. You know, my work in helping organizations cultivate talent before they need it is really ensured that they don't have to have quotas. They don't have to promote people who are underqualified just because they're the right ethnicity, they can have enough talent to choose from that they have a diverse workforce naturally. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. Scott, your book is going to be out soon, uh, April of 2017. This must be extremely exciting. I know you're a prolific publisher of remarkable content, but now putting it all into the book. So first of all, talk a little bit about the launch of, of the book. And then what's the best way both for people to possibly even pre-order and get the book? And what's the best way for them to contact you? Sure. So you can go to highvelocityhiring.com. And that's going to take you to a page on my site that tells you a lot more about the book. You can read some testimonials, some people who've had a advanced screening, including Mr. Barr here. You can order it from a number of different sources. There's also some links to other content as well from that page. But if you also go to wintripconsultinggroup.com, go to the resource tab at the top of my page, you're going to find all kinds of things. One of my favorites are my editorial cartoons, and there are messages and lessons, but in a one-shot picture. I also have a newsletter called Zero to Fill, all about how to achieve this zero time to fill. You'll find that as well. And you'll find tons of videos as well. Uh, I have a blog. That's a, one of the best places to go because any new content I publish, either there or the What's New section of my resource page, you'll find it in one of those two places. Scott, this has been fabulous. Thank you for your insight, for your knowledge, for your experience, for your wisdom. I highly encourage organizations, uh, individual, executive to get the book. It's going to be absolutely amazing for them to learn all the ideas that you share in there. So thank you so much. I truly appreciate that. Thank you, Chad. A great conversation with you as always.